Welcome back. This is episode 95 of Herpetological Highlights. I am Ben Marshall and co-hosting, as always, is Tom Major. And this episode, is it a pa- pa- Patreon episode? It is a Patreon episode, yep. Good. I'm glad, I'm glad you're on the ball <laughs> remembering these things. And we have an episode all about... Uh, what, what did Darwin refer to these guys as? Little imps of darkness. Imps of darkness. Something really? like that. I've not heard that. Yeah, something, something, something kind of, kind of metal. <laughs> That's nice. Yeah. Well, um, it is a patron episode. It's a patron episode for Philip Iovino. So thanks very much, Philip. And uh, yeah, imps of darkness is a good one. I mean, yeah, they're pretty mysterious ethereal beasts we're talking about marine iguanas um which is a species of iguana supposedly the only lizard that gets its food i think i read somewhere the only lizard that gets its food from the sea but i don't think that's actually true i'm pretty sure water monitors will go for a little swim and eat some shellfish and stuff i i have seen mono lizards foraging on a beach yeah which to me is yeah maybe they're the only ones that eat algae i think that's probably the case that's yep. almost yeah i'm sure that's the case actually but that's a pretty special thing with iguanas too and their, their love of foliage right yeah it is yeah i mean they're algivorous these uh marine iguanas we're talking about amblyrhynchus cristatus aka it's got a few different names the sea iguana the saltwater iguana or the galapagos marine iguana uh, the galapagos islands a chain of islands belonging to Ecuador. And uh, yeah, we're looking today specifically at marine iguanas. Um, there's a whole bunch of different subspecies, but they're all one species. I think there's seven different subspecies and the different subspecies Oof. exist on different islands. My favorite Naturally. of the... Su- yeah. So, you know, ordinary, ordinarily when um, animals are named after sort of things which are related to um, sort of films and TV... We're generally like slightly cynical about it. I think it's fair to say, but so it's a Godzilla one. There is a Godzilla one, yeah. Yeah, well, that's all right. Yeah, I mean, it feels like everybody knows that's where Godzilla originated in the 1999 classic Godzilla, right? Oh no, it's the wrong set of it's the wrong side of the Pacific. It's French Polynesia in that one, isn't it? Yeah, but um, I think in that was it 1999 or 1998? I'm sure that film came out in 98. Could be 98. um, yeah, but that film, Godzilla, the 1998 one, which was sort of, I think, kind of panned, wasn't it? But I liked it because when I came I out... I think it was universally loved. I loved that's, it. That's what I remember. <laughs> I was eight years old and it was pretty close to a dinosaur in the film, so I was just all about that. But yeah, in that film, in the opening credits, um, a Galapagos marine iguana actually features swimming right. about as yeah. like a sort of example of this Is type it... of lizard movement that you can get. Like lovely great opening credit sequence in that movie yeah i seem to recall it was quite sort of um a bit scary some sort of nuclear inferences going on but yeah they named they named one of the subspecies after godzilla the one that's in san cristobal island it's called the godzilla marine iguana which is so it's the uh was it whale gorilla marine iguana then is that what that means i think so I might, I might be misremembering or, you know, have been sold a, a urban lie, but... Um, Is that what Godzilla means? I, I have a feeling. Wow. But either way, um, yeah, they called it Amblyrhynchus cristatus Godzilla. And uh, yeah, apparently the behavior of the iguanas were a significant source of inspiration to the creature's designer, 
who, um, yeah. And I mean, you can see that in the 98 film. It does kind of look like a big marine iguana bowling around the city, slapping its tail into all the skyscrapers and stuff. Yeah. I mean, if you look hard enough, I feel like you can find an example of Godzilla uh, inspired by any number of, of animals that are very non-iguana-like. I mean, grub form of Shin Godzilla, that's, that's barely iguana-like at all. <laughs> <laughs> that's some niche Godzilla knowledge. So, uh, yeah, let's, let's get on to the first paper, shall we, about marine iguanas. Yeah, we had to dive a little bit further back in time because we just couldn't pass up an opportunity to talk about this bizarre subject. So in, is it Nature? Is this published in Nature? It just says, yeah, Nature Brief Communications. 2000 by uh, Winkleski and Fom. Uh, marine iguanas shrink to survive El Nino. That's right. Yeah. Which is big news. And this will... You know, this this is quite a well-known thing about these iguanas. I think as um, in terms of sort of science communication, uh, this is probably, this particular fact is quite a success. I think a lot of people have heard, well, to be honest, maybe not actually. It's quite a while ago now. I seem to recall it featured on one of the David Attenborough programs. Yeah, I think it's a Life in Cold Blood mention. Oh, is it? Which, you know, that, that explains a lot because, I mean, that's, you know, if you get in that, that sort of documentary, people are going to remember it. That's That's... Kind of Life and deal. Cold Blood comes up every episode at the moment. Well, I mean, it's because it's good. Like, it, if people are good. out there that haven't seen it, who are listening to this, I go track it down. You get a kick out of it. Yeah, so before we get stuck into this paper, the figures made me laugh. Is this what figures looked like in the year 2000? Is this what people were putting up with? No, this is... This is uh, I, was, I was also appalled by the figures. For obviously people who can't see... Um, they appear to have a resolution of maybe 15 pixels by, mm, I don't know, 26. It's absolutely diabolical. It looks but like... yet the text appears relatively okay. The Yeah, the text so, is fine. But the image of the iguana in one of the figures, there's like a, there's a, um, a, a graph there with a, an example of an iguana. And honestly, it is a lower quality than the original sprites in the Pokemon games. It is almost shocking. impossible to disturb. Yeah, it's I don't shocking. understand. Don't the understand only thing it has that. over those original sprites is a slightly higher colour bit rate, as in <laughs> more colours. Uh, I just had to get that off my chest. I, the world, yeah, I don't know how, why it's so low res. Anyway, I have yeah. no idea. I can only as, assume it's some weird compression issue at some point making the PDF. I can, there is no way the printed version looks like this. Yeah, I hope not. Anyway, so um, yeah, this paper... So we've got these iguanas, as we mentioned, they're not that big. Um, the Godzilla one gets to over a meter, but most of them are sort of averaging around a bit less than that. They mooch around on the shore of these nice sunny Galapagos islands, eating algae. When they're smaller, they tend to eat algae on the intertidal zone. So females, small males, mooch around on the intertidal zone, chomp, chomping down on the algae. And the large adult males, which are the ones you'll have seen in documentaries, they have the power to go into the sort of actual sea itself and dive and eat the algae on the rocks underneath the water there um, which is pretty awesome unusual behavior from a lizard now the galapagos islands um they are subject to el nino events which are um el nino is sort of a severe weather type situation that can be 
multiple years long or it can be one year but generally these El Nino events occur at intervals of three to seven years but between 1990 and 1999 they were really very severe um there's this like El Nino Southern Oscillation Index which measures the severity yeah. of El Ninos and I mean in in short El Nino versus what is it La Nina it's the way I think you know, cor- correct me if this is wrong, but this is what I remember from old geography lessons. It's the way the ocean circulates in the Pacific. It builds up hot water on the west side, correct? No, east side. Oh, I can't remember which way around it is. But the circulation ordinarily builds up warm water on one side and cool water on the other. And El Nino is where it sort of breaks out and that circulation suddenly fluctuates and uh, the temperatures shift. Right. Yes. That's yes. Yes. A, yeah. A I very that, poorly described, and and as I say, I can't remember which way round it goes. No. But I believe El Nino is when the, the warm water breaks out of where it ordinarily is. Yeah, I had all this explained to me in detail by my brother the other day, who's like a, uh, I guess like a biochemist, and uh, I've since forgotten. But the the long story short is that during El Nino times. Um, the iguanas are subject to uh, hotter temperatures. The water itself gets hotter. And what that means, you might think, oh, it's decent. It'd be nice in the water for a lizard when it's a bit warmer. And well, yes and no, because obviously they get to spend more time in the water. But the trouble is the algae, which they love to eat, specifically they like green and red algae. It doesn't grow when the water gets too hot. It becomes inhospitable for the algae. And what you end up with is a situation where the, the iguanas are actually struggling to find food and they're forced to eat undigestible brown algae, which nobody wants. Brown algae is no. just no. Yeah, unacceptable. So during times of food scarcity, um, iguanas... What they tend to do, and this, there was a paper by Wikelski and Reg in 2000, and they'll do some pretty disgusting things when this happens, when El Nino is going on. They're not above uh, expanding their diet. And when they do, they scavenge on things like feces. So they eat the poo of sea lions, which is extremely degrading. No one wants to be doing that. It's worse than brown algae. And they also eat the feces of their conspecifics. They'll also eat things which have been regurgitated by other animals. And they'll even go and lick up sea lion afterbirths during the sea lion breeding season. And, and things uh, get pretty desperate for these guys then, is, is yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. I think that's a pretty clear indication that, yeah, yeah they're pretty and hungry. Just, before, you, before you go on, just to, just to correct the El Nino stuff, it's, yeah, uh, easterly winds keeping warm water over towards Australia, Indonesia and stuff. When those weaken, that warm water heads back over and can make it over to the uh, Galapagos, hence your algal. Algal changes. Good stuff. So what happens during El Nino? Well, lots of iguanas die of starvation. It can be as many as 90%, which is pretty shocking. I mean, that's outrageous. 90%. Sad. Especially when you consider these are an animal which live on the shore. They form these big cuddle puddles when they're cold. And uh, yeah, 90% of them dying. It's sad. I'd imagine the scene on the seashore would be quite depressing at this time. Yeah, yeah. But there's something even more shocking that happens to the iguanas which don't starve, and that is they actually shrink. So we're talking about iguanas which are up to 35 or 45 centimetres long, and they're shrinking a couple of centimetres, so quite a noticeable amount on their full size. Um, sometimes as much as six centimetres of shrinkage, which is, you know, pretty shocking. Which is a big deal. Like, I think, I think 
you know, six enemies doesn't sound much, but when you take into account how outrageously difficult it is to shrink your bones, yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> and that is what they're shrinking. It's actually the skeleton. They're reabsorbing yeah. um, bone into their bodies and, uh, yeah. They're 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 shrinking, which is you know you. I don't know about you, but I generally considered growth to be kind of unidirectional, where an animal gets bigger right. as it gets older. Well, these iguanas have the ability to actually suddenly decide, right? Times are times are tough. Food is scarce, and this is obviously an ad- adaptive thing. They're used to they've evolved for a long time in an area where this El Nino can happen, and when it does happen, those that survive have this adaptation to shrink. And it, it allows yeah. them to, you know, they had evidence which um, suggested that the larger the iguanas were, the more they'd shrink. But also um, those that shrank the most survived the longest. So after three years, there were a lot of iguanas which had shrunk a lot surviving. Whereas, uh, you know, if they didn't change or they changed very little, they were much less likely to survive. So and it makes sense. Dual yeah. evidence of the shrinking happening during an El Nino time, and also the ones which shrinking, which are shrinking the most, surviving the longest. Right, and you've got this this ninety percent loss. I mean, talk about a selective pressure. Which are the ones going to survive? Are you know, ten percent? You're gonna if you're just picking the ten percent best at surviving El Nino conditions, they're going to be considerably better than the ninety percent that didn't make it. Right, that is yep. such an aggressive selection like whether that selective pressure all sort of pushes towards the same thing be that shrinking be that you know more efficient metabolism in another way is a whole other question but very evident that there is a hefty hefty pressure there yeah it's wild and the shrinking thing you know it's i mean it's amazing it's amazing that they've got this adaptation living on the seashore times are tough there's no algae what do we do we can either die or shrink. Well, let's shrink. And interestingly, <laughs> this is a species which they're not known for being insanely territorial or battling to the death or anything like that. But they do occasionally have sort of territorial fisticuffs, particularly the females are very savage with each other when they're in their sort of nesting period, when they're guarding their nests. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, I just thought it was quite an interesting idea because these iguanas, not only can they shrink, but they can also grow and then subsequently shrink again. So they can basically flip-flop between phases of growing and shrinking. And the males will compete a little bit. They have a little bit of territoriality. They tend not to bite, but they'll, you know, head by each other and have a little squabble. Imagine the dynamic, right? So imagine there's two iguanas. One year they've got a bit of beef, so they have it out. The next year, the iguanas come back. One of them shrunk. The other one hasn't shrunk. So the iguana's old nemesis, which it was previously (laughs) on pretty equal footing with, is now larger than it. Right. That's a crazy dynamic. But that's that's really interesting. You have a behavioural aspect to them that might be weakening the pressure just to be smaller and smaller and smaller. So you've got this counter-selection to be bigger. But if you still require being small during the tough times, which is potentially when there's an even more aggressive selective pressure, maybe that sort of uh, interplay between those two selections is what's what's developing the flexibility as opposed to just them being smaller and yeah, them being pretty, more efficient. It's a pretty crazy, complicated little evolutionary situation they've got going yeah. on down there. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll tell you one thing which could probably confound it. Invasive iguanas. Invasive iguanas, yes, but that's not what we're going to be talking about. I'm talking about 
Tourists. Ah. Tourists. So should we move on? Should we move on to paper two? Godzilla's. Yeah, let's let's move on to paper two. Okay, so this one is French Newman Lee to let's see Curiosis Taylor Donado 2017. Too much of a good thing. Human disturbance linked to ecotourism as a dose dependent impact on innate immunity and oxidative stress. Marine iguanas, Amblyrhynchus cristatus. Glad they went for such a punchy title. Cons- biological conservation. Hey, they got their catchy too much of a good thing uh, piece in, which I always appreciate in uh, in journal titles, in article titles. Yeah, I suppose so. It's Some, something just a, something, a little hook. Yeah. Okay, so for the last that. 10 million years or so, right, these iguanas on the shores of the Galapagos Islands had very little in the way of predators. They evolved in quite a fortunately chill place. The sea um, lions don't go for them? I don't, not as far as I know. I don't, I mean, possibly. Sea lions are savages. I remember a wonderful video sequence not including sea lions at all because i realized that was a stupid thing to mention um <laughs> so just to be clear the sea lions are not eating these with the galapagos uh, racers taking the little young'uns and uh i mean that that wonderful sequence from from the bbc like okay their adults might not have many predators but the young'uns they're at risk that's actually true, yeah. The paper I read didn't mention those races. Maybe that was a more recent um, finding. Or a different island. Or a different island, yeah. And the other thing, I mean, it's very... If, if they're breeding at very particular times of the year, it's a very... Um, what's the right word? Episodic sort of situation. So it it's, it's not... Um, as we saw going to this paper, it doesn't really apply to prolonged stress or prolonged pressure it's you know if you can make it through that little period then you're good yeah yeah i suppose um yeah the races are a, a, a threat to these little iguanas that's very true i suppose only in their juvenile years but yeah they right, also right. about three hundred thousand years ago the galapagos hawk which is bateo galapagoensis great name colonized the islands and they started eating iguanas which the iguanas obviously had to adapt to but you know for the most part the predation pressure on these guys has been relatively low throughout their evolutionary history and that is all changing quite rapidly uh, in the sort of i mean certainly very recently in geological time since the arrival of humankind and humans have of course brought with them a variety of hazards uh, including cars cats rats dogs and just general hustle and bustle which the iguanas were probably not used to they certainly are not city slickers by nature well and as a marine iguanas boats too oh yeah of course boats yeah 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 snorkelers sea cars yeah yeah. And so, yeah, ecotourism is a part of this hustle and bustle and requires a certain amount of infrastructure in order to operate. Of course, there are some benefits of ecotourism. We're talking about people going on holiday to the Galapagos, which is very popular. Lots of cruises to the Galapagos to go and see the wildlife. Um, and Galapagos wildlife is kind of famed for its uh, lack of reaction to predators because they've kind of evolved in this utopian island paradise although we know that's not completely true but generally speaking there's not that many predators i mean look what happened to the dodos they were just well they weren't in the galapagos no uh, timely timely thing to mention but they similarly had a uh, very 
uh, lackadaisical approach to predators. And when the Portuguese arrived, it didn't do them any favors. And I think right. the same can be said for some of the animals on the Galapagos Islands, although they're not extinct. But yes, so long story short, seeing people all the time isn't necessarily a natural state for wild animals. Um, lots of different things can happen. They can become habituated to, to people where they no longer respond the same way to the threat of a human attacking them. So they're kind of... Uh, instincts around predators are dulled or sometimes the presence of people has other measurable negative effects um for example you mentioned sea lions earlier there's a paper which looked at sea lions in relation to areas of tourism and when there's lots of people around them sea lions growth rates slow down and they're also less reproductively successful so there are like measurable negatives and what the authors of this paper wanted to do was to look at basically measure a whole load of things about these iguanas and their general health. And I think a lot of the things they've done are quite cool and quite cutting edge. Um, yeah. Because we're, you know, we're starting to get a bit of a better understanding about sort of hormones, sex hormones, stress hormones, and how they all interact with each other. And, right. Um, but I think it's also become cheaper to look at these things too. You know, I mean, all, all this sort of lab-based stuff, it's, it's way cheaper now to do all sorts of uh, genomic analyses that before just wouldn't you know wouldn't be it took you, know, you think the distance when when was the whole human genome sequenced like is it isn't 2000 something was it 2000 something? late 90s yeah and now i mean how many full genomes do we have of of species yeah we've you got know, one of escalapian perfect, snakes they're right, exactly it's perfectly feasible to do it for all sorts of species which you know if you went to someone in the mid-90s said, I want to do, you know, get the full genome of this colubrid snake. Like, what? What? Why? <laughs> Why? <laughs> you know, you'd be left out of the room because it yeah. would be prioritised for other stuff. And They'd call the you cost an ignoramus. would just not... You wouldn't be allowed because it'd be tough to justify the cost. Human Genome Project completed in 2003, begun in 1990. There we go. Yeah, so there you go. 13 years to get it done. How long does it take to do a full genome these days? Well, COVID slowed it down a bit, but it wasn't that long. A few months. Yeah. Yeah. So, really wicked to see a paper. I mean, it's not using genomic stuff. That was just a separate example. But I think in terms of lab work and stuff, they've done a lot. Yes. A heck of a lot. Yeah, they have. And it, you know, this is a paper which, uh, on the face of it, is a, it's a classic one where it's like, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of different elements. So I think we should yes. just kind of blast through the different elements, talk about them briefly. We don't want to get too bogged down. If people want to like get a really thorough understanding of these things, they can Google some key terms. Yes, I think that the kicker at the end is it all tie up, hopefully, in one sort of coherent uh, story. Yes. Yes. The tale of the iguana is in many ways. We don't want to underplay how much detail has been put into this paper and how much effort has been put into all the separate elements, even if they all are serving one one particular conclusion. Yes. So okay, let's start off with uh, stress hormones, shall we? Corticosteroid levels? Um well should we actually start with with context? And like sampling. You and your context, go on. Yeah. So you're walking into a place, you've got iguanas everywhere. And everywhere. what you're caring about is is assessing how they're reacting to people. But it's no good just sort of ass- assessing them where people are very close to them. You just, okay, 
that's that's how they're dealing with people great you need some baselines to compare it to so they have this wonderful gradient of sort of intensity of human disturbance and they've sort of created these metrics at their different sample sites uh based on what they had a whole they had a whole lovely list didn't they yeah so it's all based on sort of distances to different activities that are the known you know, known human disturbances. So you're talking about roads, marinas, uh, like urban features, you know, buildings, things like that. You combine them all together to get one index, this index of human disturbance for each of your study sites. And if you have enough study sites that cover the whole range of disturbance, you can compare the less disturbed to the more disturbed and see how these, uh, these proxies for stress change in relation to the disturbance level from humans. Excellent, excellent. So we've got the continuum of stressfulness, at least in terms of human presence. Let's talk about the most obvious thing, which is the stress hormone levels. Corticosteroid is the hormone of choice in this situation. And I think, to be honest, this was one of the findings which uh, is on the face of it a little bit difficult to decipher. Males had elevated corticosterone levels so males had higher amounts of this stress hormone where there was higher disturbance from tourists whereas females the opposite was true they actually had less of the corticosteroid hormone in their blood when they were in areas of higher tourists so it's a bit weird a bit of an opposite effect between males and females so what's, what's the purpose of this is cortisone then what's the uh What's the general understanding? It's like a hormone that can amplify uh, like muscle activity and stuff, right? It has a, yeah, a whole I think bunch it's like of a purposes, higher level but it's yeah, it's linked to especially you treat that like you know, you'd you'd be talking about things like adrenaline and stuff like that, which are completely separate, but the idea is that it is a it's meant to be a reaction to something, yeah? Yeah with the idea of making you more geared to dealing with it? It's a good question, you know. It's hard to determine what things do outside the sphere of humans, isn't it? Well, I think that's I think that's the issue. Is it, it, I think it not only is hard to discern, but actually has different impacts in different ways. Yeah. Um, and even, you know, you've got this, this difference between male and female which might be down to how they're dealing with, with human disturbance, but equally might be down to how they're using that hormone or how it's metabolized. So glucocorticoids um, bind to glucocorticoid receptors throughout the body, and these activate a cascade of physiological and behavioral changes. So yeah, it's all to do with um, basically... Um, triggering changes in the body which will be beneficial during periods of stress. So yeah, it's right. closely tied to um, yeah um, yeah, and they, they elevate in times of stress essentially and that mm -hmm. they kind of control changes to um, cell and molecular responses, physiological responses so like energetic use of, well, the energy used by the animal and also things like growth, behavior, reproduction, and they can also suppress things as well as excite things. So they, they, they bring about changes in the animal, which okay. um, are natural, but, uh, you know, if you have the wrong level levels of hormones, then these natural responses might get kind of knocked out of whack slightly. Yeah. Yeah. Or be more expensive or cheaper or 
yeah, energetically more efficient, less efficient, right? Yes, yeah. Mm. So it's an indicator of change, I suppose, would be a very broad way of calling it then, or, or potential for change? Yes, I suppose so. It's an indicator of... Um, sure, the, the specifics. Yeah, it's basically... It's an, yeah, you, yeah, if... if, if if corticosteroid levels are higher in the blood, it means that these changes which are brought about by stress are going to be happening more in the body of the animal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or there's more potential for them to occur. Yes. Yeah. So it is weird that there is a separation between males and females, because you would expect if it was entirely from human disturbance that it would impact them in the same way. Yeah, although um, perhaps, you know, males and females respond differently to stress. Um which is completely understandable. I mean, yeah, I would imagine, a, a, you know, an example of a stressor could be an agonistic interaction, perhaps a male's coming up to you and getting all leery. If you're a female iguana, maybe you react differently to that than a male iguana. So mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. only natural that the levels could be different. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting Depending on one. how they interpret the human disturbance, you say. Yeah. And sort of, they have to different be honest, they, uh, they, perspectives on it, I suppose. Yeah, and they don't really <laughs> know why. They, uh, long story short is that they don't really know why the females have this different reaction yeah. um, and the lower corticosteroid levels while the males have higher levels at more disturbed sites. They don't really understand it. But anyway, we'll move on from corticosteroid. The point remains that there is a change in the corticosteroid yes. levels, which is yes, the stress even hormone. Yes, if, if it's going down or it's increasing, there is clearly a change stemming from intensity of disturbance. Yeah, it will impact how the animal behaves in some way. Okay, so what about, let's move on to immunity, shall we? Yeah, so what were they? They had a couple of couple of uh, sort of proxies for immunity, didn't they? They had the uh, blood's capability of uh, killing off bacteria, right? Yep. And they had a second one. Um, it was the number of ticks. Was it just number of ticks? Parasites? Ectoparasites? Yeah. So yeah, you mentioned uh, yeah. So so in terms of their immunity, they tested to see how much of a foreign bacteria uh, a sample of animals' plasma was able to kill. So um, they were looking basically at their kind of ability to kill foreign bodies using their blood, which is an important function of the plasma. And yeah, they basically saw that the ability of an animal's plasma to kill foreign bacteria was not only suppressed in populations that were more disturbed, but this reduction actually um, scaled in response to the intensity of tourism-related disturbance. So what that means is that in areas where there were more tourists, the blood was less able to kill foreign bacteria. And that is worse the more tourists that there are. Yeah, well, more... (laughs) The increase with their disturbance index. Like, it's yeah. important to note that their disturbance index does not equal number of tourists because they, they simply didn't have data on, uh, like, people people's activities or something. So it is it is a proxy. It's, it's all about mm-hmm. distance to fixed landscape features. So it's now, like, yeah, more touristy yeah. areas. Perhaps. Well, more, more human-built-up areas. I mean, they, they make uh, that sort of... They link the tourism to infrastructure connection very early on in this paper and say they're essentially indistinguishable, which is perfectly fair. But it's oh, it, it it's annoying that there's not um, decent sort of population or, or tourism use stuff to to help quantify this because numbers of people and things like that, you know, higher resolution 
uh, way of, of, of picking out tourism would be awesome. I'm sure in the future that will be possible. I mean, everybody's walking around with smartphones and things. I'm sure a whole bunch of anonymized data showing localities of where people are would be perfect for this sort of thing. But yeah, their, their, their site disturbance index, which I think is a pretty damn good index, really, showing that reduced bacteria being killed off. Yeah. Which and so it's kind of scary in some ways, isn't it? Yeah, like, I mean, imagine that. That, that one imagine really that. hits home. Yeah, you know, that's a pretty fundamental element of your kind of survivability is your yeah. ability to attack foreign bodies in your bloodstream. And, and if you're I, not as good at doing that, that's kind of troubling. Yeah, and although I don't have much of a, a gauge of what, you know, how bad is bad, the difference from, you know, ignorant perspective looks pretty substantial. I mean, you're dropping down from like 80% down to like 30%. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's a big difference. And interestingly, uh, an effect of raised cortisol levels, corticosteroid levels can be uh, reduced immune function. So, right. you know, we talked about- So these about things might be working in tandem to, uh, that is actually interesting because the females, just judging by the plot, they do have a a less uh, steep drop off in in relation to bacteria being killed off as site disturbance becomes more disturbed. Ah. So perhaps their stress hormone levels are sort of mitigating uh, mitigating that a little bit. Yeah, this is the kind of complex picture that this paper is actually managing to start building quite well. Yeah, um, so yeah. let's move on to the levels of sex hormones. So uh, for females, the sex hormone we're talking about is estradiol and we got testosterone for males. Um, and so with females, uh, there were high levels of estradiol um, at disturbed sites. So this was the one where... Um, they looked to see, firstly, okay, the the level of sex hormones. So there was more of this sex hormone estradiol, but conversely, um, the females at disturbed sites actually had fewer developing eggs on average, suggesting the hormone is being produced in larger quantities, but isn't working as effectively. Um, this is taken in conjunction with well, the fact that females... Didn't they, didn't they say there was no significant effect to the disturbance on the number of follicles? I know in the discussion they say they say otherwise, but in the results they're they're not seeing a difference. They do actually. That's a little bit duplicitous of them to put that there, isn't it? it I know I know what they're getting at, and I, this is why I was sort of frustrated they didn't report that result in full because the the implication is that there is a difference. It's just not statistically significant, and they're using that non-significance in context of the hormone to paint this sort of these, these two contrasting ways, but it's not reported in full as far as I can see, which is a shame. Yeah, and yet they have the mean number of follicles developing inside the um, body as an actual significant result when yes. they just split into undisturbed and tourist. So, right. yeah, it's a slightly confusing one. Um 
And one sort of final metric to talk about is oxidative stress, which in my opinion is um, quite a sort of uh, nebulous idea, which I've historically struggled to get my head around. Yeah, and, um, but historically, I'm, I'm still there swimming yeah. around in, in current confusion and, and bamboozlement. So if you could, if you could enlighten me, that would be uh, One of my, one of my friends, Miranda, she studied oxidative stress in blue tits for her masters and i spent the whole ah. year pretending i understood what was going on when she talked about it um that's not quite true but yeah it's pretty complicated oxidative stress right so just briefly oxidative stress the balance between free radicals and antioxidants in the body so free radicals in your body there are molecules of course that's what we're made of sometimes they end up missing an electron right that's because um this can happen because of external factors like pollution. It can also happen because of internal factors like stress. It's basically your body sort of breaking down. Breathing also sometimes causes um, free radicals. So these um, molecules missing an electron to be formed. So does digestion. So normal things create them. But um, they're balanced out by these miracle things called antioxidants, which many people will probably have heard of because anytime scientists become convinced that something might be good for you, you can sell it. So people are probably familiar with antioxidants. You know, they might know what foods contain antioxidants. Yeah, it's probably those magic yoghurts, right? Oh, those, they, I mean, you can they just have tell. You can just tell it's good for you, the, when you eat The lifeblood of fish in them somehow. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, we wrung out a fish's liver and now you can drink it. But no, um, essentially, yeah, your oxidative stress occurs when um, these... Uh, molecules which are missing an electron come into the body and they damage other cells because they steal their electrons away. And antioxidants are these miraculous molecules which have electrons aplenty and they can just give them away to free radicals. And when they do that, the balance is restored and the oxidative stress is reduced. So essentially, you've got to have enough antioxidants to take care of your free radicals and more free mm -hmm. radicals are likely to produce to be produced if you live in a stressful or polluted environment right and what they found was that um the iguanas which were living in the areas with the greatest infrastructure and the more sort of tourist associated things actually had higher concentrations of free radicals so these bad molecules inside their bodies and they were lacking the antioxidants to cope with them so what you're saying... There wasn't a associated rise in antioxidants. Yeah, it, it's another line of evidence for these guys being under greater pressure, greater stress, and, you know, the, the associated uh, physiological cost of being close to human disturbed areas. And yeah. the only way to mitigate this is to airdrop in iguana-sized drinking yogurts to uh, mitigate the oxygen... Uh, oxygen uh, free radical damage I think blueberries are supposed to be quite a good source of antioxidants oh, as so well blueberry yogurt blueberry yogurt scat some blueberries around I'm not um, I'm not sure yogurt's right I think I'm I think I think that's that I think that's that omega-3 nonsense stuff I think omega-3 omega-3 I mean I don't know if that's an antioxidant <laughs> I'm really not sure <laughs> um, but yeah so what you've what you the long story short here, right, is that there's all of these factors within the body of an iguana, which taken collectively suggest that they're existing 
went nearby to these more touristy locations in a slightly more stressful environment that has all of these effects. And mm -hmm. they're, you know, are they severe? Are they not severe? I don't know, but they're chronic. So they are elevated throughout the life of the animal. And yep. it could well be that this is making their lives more difficult. And, you know, you'll look at the iguana, it looks fine, it looks happy, but inside, deep down, oxidative stress is occurring, increased aging, yep. stress. Do you know what I mean? It's like you see an office worker first thing in the morning, they just had their coffee, they might look all right. Look at that person 45 years from now after sitting in that booth, constantly surrounded by stress, the printer, the printer, the printer, the printer, the printer's never working properly, yeah? 45 years after that, they're going to look older than someone who's been frolicking around, gamboling in the fields for those 45 years. It's yeah, subtle. It takes time. Yeah, it takes time for these things to appear, for these stresses to actually reveal their negative side effects. And the take-home message of this paper is basically, look, these iguanas, they've got a bit more of a stressful time. It's having some negative effects. How much this affects their survival is still kind of yet to be determined. That's the kicker. I think that's, you know, that's really where this ties everything up is if you're finding these iguanas nearer, higher disturbed sites with lower survival rates, then you've got a pretty convincing case for, you know, tourism or, or human disturbance leading to higher stress and that stress being expressed in, in lower survival. You know, you throw in some El Nino events too. And the, and the stress that comes with that, you know, the, the lack of food or having to eat brown uh, brown algae and other iguanas' feces. Oh, <laughs> it's a dark time for these, these little limps. It really is. And there really needs to be, and this is what they say in the paper, that it needs to be a balance because, yes, yes. ecotourism, on the face of it, fantastic. It's a way for people to turn wildlife into income without turning the wildlife into either delicious meats or purses and that's really important but on the flip side of that you've got to make sure that if you are managing wildlife for ecotourism you need to do it in a way which is sustainable to those populations in the big picture you can't right. allow it to be causing the animals stress such that they're slowly declining and you basically enjoy them out of existence i think it's one of these cases that would be described as a win-win scenario. Like, oh yeah, we're keeping the keeping the iguanas and we're getting tourism. It all seems to be great, but there's this sort of hidden cost there. There's sort of no such, uh, no thing as a free lunch sort of stuff. No thing such as a free lunch. Yeah. There you have it. Those, that's, <laughs> that's what people say. <laughs> there's no thing such as a free lunch. <laughs> say no more. But my point remains, right? Like, Things come with a cost, especially if you're aiming to make money out of it. There's always a cost. If you're not paying that cost and it appears to be free, it's probably being paid somewhere else. Deep insights. Right. So I think that's about enough, isn't it? I think that's about enough on marine iguanas. I think they're fascinating. What were they called? Little black imps? I can't. Imps of darkness, I think is, I think is the term. I, it's paining me that I can't remember exactly. And I'm not going to have to look it up now because... If we go through the entire episode saying the wrong thing and don't correct it, it's just... I feel like Charles Darwin's Imps of Darkness would be a great name for a band. Ah, yeah. the much maligned marine iguanas of the Galapagos Islands are famously... Homely? Okay, that's one way of describing Okay. Even Charles Darwin piled on, describing them as hideous-looking, most disgusting clumsy lizards. Thanks, National Geographic. That's, Why did um... Darwin have such a beef against these guys? I thought Darwin liked animals. No, 
No, he he only cared about them to get ahead. (laughs) Darwin reported... Okay, so he clearly had a serious beef with these guys. Darwin reported that a seaman on board sank one with a heavy weight, thinking to kill it directly. But when, an hour afterwards, he drew up the line, it was quite active. Jesus. They anchored one to the seabed to see what would happen for an hour. And it was alive when it came back up. Fair play, Iguana. That must have been horrible. These people are monsters. Yeah, literally. Back in the day. Yeah. And you think we're exploiting them now with, with wildlife. Darwin and his pals were just chucking them overboard to see if they could survive. I, I, we need to find this this imp comment, though. Somebody calls them imps of darkness. Yeah, it's a thing. It was, it, was, it was Darwin. It's Darwin and his cronies. Okay, imps of darkness. Which I'm, I'm quite okay with. That's, that's pretty I, cool. I think it's quite cool. So, calling them, uh, calling yeah. them ugly, hideous, clumsy lizards, that is unacceptable. Well, they're not, yeah, I mean, ugly, hideous, and clumsy. They're just doing what they've evolved to do. Do you know what I mean? They're pretty good in the sea. Yeah, they're doing all right. Eating, yeah. eating algae and other things. Yeah. So, thank you very much, Philip Iovino, for that suggestion. Yeah, awesome that was, suggestion. That was good fun. And if anyone else wants to be our Patreon, you can at patreon.com slash highlights. Should we move on to the species of the bye week? Let's do it. Species of bye week time. Okay, so this is by Torres Carvajal Para Salas Nunes and Cock. 2021, a new species of microtegu lizard from Amazonian Ecuador, published in the Journal of Herpetology. It's like a tegu, but just really small. Teeny, yeah. teeny, tiny microtegu. So, yeah, we are in Amazonian Ecuador, which is why this is relevant, because the Galapagos Islands are, in fact, part of Ecuador, technically speaking. So, you know, it's a new species from not far away. I although, think that's, uh, that's pretty good effort to be fair yeah yeah i'm quite i think i think i did really well yeah so um (laughs) (laughs) so uh yeah we're talking about this nice little lizard and um the family is gymnophthalmidae and uh this is actually pretty new genus this genus has only been described in 2018 and this is only the second species in the genus um the genus so let's talk about our lizard I Let's just, talk about a lizard. Yeah. Go on. Go I, on. I just want, this genus is like so new and fresh and changing. There's this wonderful note at the end of the paper that's saying, uh, while this paper was, was in proof, um, another species was described, <laughs> which was one of the ones they were comparing it to that they just had listed as, as like, uh, to, to a sort of more general level. And so you can, like the dynamicism here of species being described while other pe- papers of you know, sister species are being described. It is very alive, I suppose. Yeah, very much so. And this genus um, is quite cool. The genus is Selvasaura, and um, it's derived from the Spanish noun selva, which means forest, and Greek noun, well, I can't pronounce it, but it it, it means lizard, and saura <laughs> is the feminine, feminine form. And uh, it refers to the habitat of the type species. So you've got selva, which means forest, and... Uh, Sora, which means lizard. So forest lizard is literally the genus name, which is pretty cool because they live it's in montane rainforest. Yeah. yeah. So Selvasora and this new species, what have they called it? They've called it 
Selvasora almendariese, which is named after Anna Almendariz, who is the former curator of herpetology in the Natural History Museum of Ecuador. And uh, yeah, she's an Ecuadorian herpetologist who's made important contributions. Cool. I prefer the name of the other one, which is uh, Selvasora Bravo, which is sort of like just congratulating it for existing, really. <laughs> <laughs> These are tiny lizards, too. When I said microtago, you know, joked about microtago, like they're, they're four centimeters SVL. Four centimeters? Yeah, that's what the holotype is SVL with 39.54 millimeters. It's Diddy. Yeah, I mean, the tail is probably another four centimeters. But um, that's a, that is a that is a micro micro tegu. It's about as small as they get, I would guess. Hmm? <laughs> I'd say it's about as small as they get. It's got to it's got to be close, right? Sorry, I'm looking something up. Here we go. Here we go. So yeah, Selvasora brava, which is the other species in the genus which has been described, not the one that you're talking about, which is still yet to be described. So third one up, forthcoming, right? Or has it been now been described? It was described while this paper was in proof. Oh, so it, it probably is Selvasora brava then. Um, anyway, it doesn't matter that much. No, no, it's not. It's uh, Selvasora uh, ivisa from northern oh, okay, Peru. So, so that's the third one. So the first one is Selvasora brava, and that comes from the Spanish adjective bravo, which is brave, courageous, and wild, and refers to the Rio Bravo, the largest river in the area of occurrence of the new oh. species. As well as, and this is the bit I liked, the fearless nature of the lizard to share shelter with people. See, that's nice. A, a dual meaning? Dual meaning. Very, yeah, very cool. Very, very good. So anyway, back to our one. Um, habitat looks nice. Just looks like delightful forest. We're at Wild Samaco Wildlife Sanctuary in Ecuador. Um, yeah, they were found near a river, chilling out on a leaf. Don't really know that much about how they behave. Um, relatively high elevation. Relatively mild temperatures, not freezing, not warm. Sort of, we're looking, you know, annual mean temperatures of like 20 20-ish degrees. And kind Looks of cool. adorable. I've got yeah, they're really cool looking, aren't they? I was really surprised by how colourful they are. Yeah, like orange eye. orange red. Nice little stripe down the back. Green belly, yep. red underneath the tail. Just looks like a cool little lizard. Um, hemipenes look like a heart, which is weird. Yeah, I thought that was a heart just glancing through the paper initially. But, yeah. Not sure how those would expand. Very strange. Sort of ribbed. Ribbed hemipene. Um, <laughs> what a disgusting pair of words. So, um, yeah, I think that's about all there is to say about this lizard, really. It's pretty cool, though. I'd say Google it. Um, Selvasora. Yeah, beautiful sort of brown, brown yellow striping. Sort of flanked by some more yellow spots, say the green belly, the the sort of red tail, which keeps all the patterning from the top of the lizard, but it sort of shifts in tone towards the reds. It's yeah, presumably a a sort of anti predator thing, having a having a red tail like that, or or I guess maybe sexual selection thing. But uh, I feel like distinctive tails are a hey, bite me here, so I can get the hell away sort of thing, right? Yeah, that seems quite likely. That seems quite likely. Um, but yeah, I mean, we just don't know a lot about the species really, do we? It's just cool. 
new genus, just not exciting to have a new genus of lizards coming about. And uh, it seems as though there's going to be a few more described in the near future. That's what I'm saying. From seems, these, yeah. <laughs> from these areas adjacent to the Andes. So, uh, yeah, so species of the bi week. Um, any other business? Um, oh, new paper out. Hey. Yeah, this was, this was Angie de Souza's work on uh, Boiga Cyania. And sort oh, of no way. movements of, of those guys up in the forest and how that might relate to uh, bird nesting, like the uh, white rump shammer and other like uh, little little tasty passerines that the uh, boiger like to snack on. So this is spatial ecology stuff of boiger cyanidon, yeah? Uh, cyania. Sorry, cyania. I always get those two mixed up because they have the same prefix, cy. But they're very different snakes. One's green and one's uh, sort of grey, isn't it? Yeah. yeah Cynodon's yeah. the dog tooth cat snake, isn't it? Um, that's awesome, though. Those are such yes. nifty little creatures. Saw a few of those while I was out in Thailand. Oh, they're lovely. Yeah. Just With their colour change from, from neonate to adult, too. Ooh, serious. One of the most beautiful juvenile snakes out there, actually, I would yeah. say, with that little grey head, red body. Yeah. Beautiful. Really beautiful. Oh, that's awesome. Well, congratulations to you and um, Angie's too. That's her master's research. Absolutely, Fantastic yeah. Work. Big. All right, well, we'll have to try and uh, crowbar that into an episode at some point. I think that's probably doable, yeah. I mean, yeah, a cat snake <laughs> episode would be awesome. Yeah, I don't um, know. Other than other than stuff that's done in uh, in Guam. Yeah. Um, cat, I've, it's not super common to see it done. And I, you know, the Guam stuff, they tend to be very good studies, but I, you know, I'm not super keen just to invade, you know, it's, it's dealing with a species in an invasive setting again, isn't it? It's, <laughs> it's always tinged with this sort of negative. Yeah, uh, yeah I agree. I agree. It's not as fun. Yeah. But yeah, I suppose so you, that's you, cool. know, you, you get a nice break from dealing with things that, you know, you want to be a bit of diversity rather than dealing with invasive slash introduced species all day right yeah yeah i that is kind of the vibe i'm on yeah, yeah so um <laughs> anyway so that's cool great work so uh i've got a little quiz for you actually ben i sent you a well okay i will not say that let's play the audio file right and you can yep. try and guess what this what this animal is i'm not going to give you anything i even deleted all the metadata so you wouldn't have any clues oh please like i would like I would use metadata to... You'd be uh, straight in that metadata. I know you would. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, my, my gut says amphibian. Because, I mean, you know, the, the chances of it being a, a squamate making that noise is incredibly low right that's just restricting you to geckos as far as i remember so i'm, I'm gonna yes. i'm gonna i'm gonna put geckos aside because i don't reckon it's those guys it doesn't seem like cheapy enough for a gecko there's some kind of watery vibes on the recording as well there's definitely some watery vibes i don't think there's any sort of like turtle terrapin or uh tortoise get rid of those guys uh crocodilian maybe but <laughs> like in terms of diversity numbers just playing the odds it's got to be amphibian now and type, type of amphibian do I get any sort of clue in terms of like location vaguely in the world or anything 
I'll give you a clue, and that is, you could find this species in many places in the world. Ah, uh, uh, perhaps cane toad institutions. Ah, no, Xenopus. Oh, clawed uh, African clawed frog. Well played, yeah, well played. I mean, I pretty much gave it you, yeah. but that is no, amazing. that's a well superb done. clue. To be fair, no, there's no yeah. way. I, there's no way I would have guessed. Uh, <laughs> yeah, would have guessed. I mean, Xenopus. We just don't, we're just not trained to recognise frogs by their calls. And that's okay, you know, you can't do everything in herpetology. You've got to pick. Um, so, yeah, the reason I've given you that quiz in particular is because I came across a pretty unbelievable study that was published just very recently <laughs> in <laughs> iScience. I thought you were going to say I found a pretty unbelievable frog on my doorstep. It was a xenopus screaming <laughs> at me, did the recording, <laughs> threw it back in the There's- pond. No, that's not my recording. Um, yeah, so essentially this paper came out in iScience, which is a journal I hadn't heard of, um, but it's new. It's come I-Science. out. I think it's uh, part of Cell. Oh, okay. No, I might have heard of this. Um, but yeah. Yeah, it's, it's part uh, of Cell. Yeah, it's a new paper that came out. And basically, we, sh- we should remember that Cell is part of Elsevier. Like, right. We shouldn't let them just hide that away. <laughs> Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, essentially, scientists have got the tadpoles of some of these Xenopus levis, the African clawed frog, and they've denied them oxygen. But prior to denying them oxygen, what they've done is they've injected them with um, cyanobacteria and green algae, right? Which are organisms which, in the presence of light, produce oxygen. Are you so saying they've, done, they've made photosynthesizing tadpoles? That's what I'm about to say, yes, essentially. What they did was they injected uh, these cyanobacteria and green algae into the hearts of these juvenile tadpoles. Then they denied them oxygen, right, to a point where brain activity ceased, right? They're functionally dying. There's no brain activity because there's no oxygen in the brain. It can't do anything. Then what do they do? They shine a light on the tadpole. That green algae and cyanobacteria that the frog has pumped around its body that tadpoles pumped into its brain as soon as that sees light bang it starts producing oxygen what happens brain signals the oxygen produced by the algae allows the brain to start firing off again despite not having any access to oxygen in the normal way it would get it which would be through respiration of the water so this is like pretty amazing bit of work because it's the first time as far as I know that they've been able to give an animal oxygen in its brain without letting it breathe, which obviously if you play it forward 15, 20,000 iterations kind of gives you some pretty science fictiony vibes where we might be able to have situations where human beings can survive in the absence of oxygen. That's outrageous. And I almost want to know... <laughs> Part of me wants to more, want to know more details, but the other part of me is not wanting my brain exploded by questions about like horizontal gene transfer and like <laughs> how <laughs> how. But I mean, there's obviously some advantages respiring, to using these. No, it wasn't respiring for them. It was producing oxygen for them in place of breathing. their normal yeah their normal breathing, and it was just there sitting in like. It was just loose. He just slapped it in a tadpole and off it went. They injected it. Are you asking how they got the bacteria, the algae in there? Yeah, well, I'm asking sort of where the algae is, I suppose. Like, is it... So the algae, when they first in- when they first injected it, they put it into the heart. So the natural rhythm of the heart distributed it evenly around the bloodstream. 
Ah, okay. But obviously, you know, the brain is a massive store of blood. And so inevitably, when the light was shone, and obviously these animals have the advantage of being see-through, so the light could penetrate straight into the brain where oxygen can just start being produced. Obviously, if you did it with a human, you'd have to cut them out a little window so the light could get in. (laughs) It's a skull. Yeah, naturally. Yeah. Yeah, that's how you'd have to be done. Don't wear hats. You will die. But I, for one, I'm willing to be a volunteer put this algae in my brain, cut me a little window, and I'll just bowl about. I'm sick and tired of breathing. It's such a labor. Let me photosynthesize. Still have to, still have to like, eat and get your glucose, wouldn't you? Boring. Come, surely we can get some injected algae for that as well. Just turn yourself into, like, an, a, a cyclical closed system. Algal, <laughs> like, All you need biosphere. is a light bulb, which is powered by your own motion. Yeah, but wait a second. No, you still have to have some input because, like, energy loss from heat and, like, doing something, you're still losing it. You'd still need input. Yeah. You'd have to yeah. You'd have to get fresh fresh algae or something. Either way, it's pretty remarkable, isn't it? It's outrageous. I that was really yeah. cool. Yeah. Xenopus <sighs> always on the receiving end of... <laughs> I know. It, it, I, it, I could never do it, but the results are nuts and outrageously interesting i just there are like marine species that have marine animals that have symbiotic ones yeah Yeah, you're right there are yeah so it's not like it's the first time we've ever seen this this working in an animal but to have it happen in an animal where it's not (laughs) you know not naturally occurring is yeah seems like quite a big deal it does seem like quite a big deal, which is why I thought might as well mention it. Um, but yeah, anyway, that's the reason I got you to do that quiz. And uh, yeah, the only other business I've got is I met a listener. So uh, hey. I said, yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, big up John Duke. Thanks a lot, mate. It's nice to meet you. Always strange to meet someone who listens to the podcast. <laughs> but yeah, turns out the guy's a legend. So Excellent. yeah. Um, all right, let's, uh, let's wrap it up there, shall we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think um, that's... If you want to get in touch with us, you can hurt highlights at gmail.com or through social media. Um, I think, yeah, all that remains to be said is uh, thank you for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>